This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to our series of podcasts on the practical aspects of undertaking a redundancy exercise. I'm Claire Davis, a senior associate in the employment team, and with me is Trevor Bettany, head of the employment team. Good afternoon, Claire. Redundancy usually arises where an employer decides to reduce the number of its employees, either within the business as a whole or within a particular site, business unit, function or job role. Unfortunately, the pandemic has meant that many employers are having to make large scale redundancies or start planning for when the furlough scheme ends, currently on 30th of April. Redundancies may also be made as a result of changes in the nature of products or services provided, internal reorganisation, which results in more efficient use of roles and duties, technological developments, which result in change to some or all job functions, or due to the relocation of a business. If an employer is dismissing employees in any of these situations, it will have to consider whether the statutory definition of redundancy applies. This is because employees who are made redundant may be entitled to a redundancy payment, either under the statutory scheme or a more favourable contractual scheme, and because redundancy is a potentially fair reason for dismissal and therefore may give an employer a defence to an unfair dismissal claim, provided the employer has acted fairly overall. It is also important for an employer to recognise what amounts to a redundancy in order to know how to proceed in relation to its workforce, in relation to redundancy pay, avoiding the risk of claims of unfair dismissal, and where relevant, to comply with its duty to inform and consult about collective redundancy dismissals. In this, our first podcast, we will be looking at the theory, the various options open to employers considering undertaking a redundancy exercise, and what they need to take into account when planning, including drawing up objective selection criteria and selection pools. Perhaps, Trevor, we can start with looking at what is a redundancy situation in terms of satisfying the definition in the legislation. Well, I think the start point has always got to be the legislation itself. And there are three primary circumstances in which a redundancy situation will arise. First of all, there's the closure of the business. Secondly, there's the closure of the workplace at which the relevant employees are employed. And thirdly, and most commonly, where there is a reduced requirement for work of a particular type, which employees are employed to perform. And just going back to those, um, the closure of the business could be a temporary closure or it could be a permanent closure. And just in the current circumstances, when employers are having to think about mothballing their businesses because of the pandemic, it could well be that a, a temporary closure could give rise to redundancy situations, although that in the past has been uh, fairly infrequent. So the second one, the, the closure of the workplace could be a site closure or Um, and the the entire closure of the business, or it could be simply a relocation of the business somewhere else where there's no mobility clause. And then the third and the most common one is where there is this reduced requirement for work of the type which the employees are employed to perform. So it could be where there is simply less work available, drop in demand, fewer purchases, etc. So fewer employees are needed to service a smaller amount of work, or it could be that the work that needs to be done is the same, but the employer wants to do it more efficiently to reduce cost and therefore absorbs that work 
amongst a smaller group of employees. Or it could well be there are changes in the in the type of work so that there's a reduced need for certain work which is no longer carried on in the business. Um, there's one fourth category which um, captures the variation of contracts of employment. So there is um, a duty to conduct collective redundancy consultation where an employer is proposing to dismiss 20 or more employees for reasons unrelated to the individual or their performance. And it's important to, to bear that in mind and, and not to lose sight of that uh, need to consult collectively in those circumstances. Um, as, as far as the redundancy circumstances are concerned, it's very much the management's prerogative to decide whether or not there is a redundancy situation and whether or not to declare redundancies. As long as a tribunal is satisfied that the genuine reason for is a, for a dismissal is um, redundancy, then it's unlikely to ask the employer to go to great lengths to explain and justify that, that decision. There are a couple of other points worth mentioning. Um, when declaring redundancy because there can be consequences, not only collective redundancy consultation, but as you mentioned earlier, it could be that there is a contractual, whether express or implied right to receive an enhanced redundancy payment. It could be that the termination of employment on redundancy grounds triggers good lever obligations, typically in deferred compensation schemes, or it could mean that there is a, a potentially fair reason for dismissal for unfair dismissal purposes. So there are lots of things to consider when even working out whether there's a redundancy situation in the first place and what steps to take. Perhaps we could also think about what alternatives there are to redundancy that businesses should consider first before they embark on a redundancy exercise. Yeah, I think it's important for an employer to consider alternatives to redundancy and preferably to have an audit trail to show what those alternatives are that it's considered and they might include cost cutting reducing overheads generally uh, a recruitment freeze reducing overtime which will be part of the uh, overhead or cost cutting initiatives potentially reducing the number of contractors or agency staff or not renewing their fixed term contracts um, offering alternative roles to those who might otherwise be made redundant if there are vacancies elsewhere in the business. I could also think about inviting volunteers, although there's issues with that as to whether you lose control um, by allowing your best people to, to leave and take voluntary packages. Uh, there's always the option of um, early retirement under pension schemes if that's available. And if the contract permits, there may be a right to lay people off or put them on short time. And um, again, more recently, there is an opportunity to put people on furlough leave on the, in the hope that the business will recover in the, in the shorter term. So all of those points are issues that the employer ought to consider and it's good to make sure that he's got a record of having considered them. Thank you, Trevor. And also following on from that, sometimes we're asked by employers about restructuring as an alternative. What is the difference between redundancy and a business reorganisation or restructuring exercise? What should businesses be considering in deciding which option to follow? Well, there's no statutory definition of uh, what is a restructuring or a, a reorganisation. And it's a question of going back again to the statutory definition of redundancy to decide if 
the reorganization or restructuring that an employer might have decided to um, embark upon creates a statutory redundancy situation. So a reorganization can lead to a diminished requirement for work of the type for which employees are employed, um, but it might not necessarily do so. Um, it, it, common for employers to reorganize their, their staff to try to make them operate more efficiently, which may mean that they get rid of certain roles or tiers of management. And there you have your reduced requirement for those roles and, and a statutory redundancy situation. Um, sometimes employers will think that um, a restructuring rather than a reorganization means that posts, all the existing posts or certain posts in a functional department are abolished so that an employer can try to invite his staff to reapply for a reduced number of posts in that new structure. But the terms reorganization and, and restructuring don't have any technical meaning. It's just a question of really seeing what is the effect of the management decision to uh, change the way it runs its business and does that give rise to a redundancy situation. Um, there could be a reorganization which doesn't result in um, a reduced requirement and therefore an employee wouldn't be eligible for a redundancy payment and the employer might try to dismiss in those circumstances on the residual ground of some other substantial reason. When an employer is going to be looking at um, its options, redundancy will often be quite attractive because it is a, a no fault reason for dismissal. So it's not blaming the employee for being a poor performer or obviously for, for misconduct. It's therefore less controversial. It's a relatively quick and therefore a cheaper means of terminating employment than going through a performance management process that could take weeks or months. In terms of the risk of claims, it's a bit easier because an employee is unlikely to feel picked upon if he is one of several being made redundant. Um, employers can sometimes use redundancy exercises of larger groups as being an opportunity to clear out some, some dead wood, although um, there may be some costs where employees are good levers for the purposes of uh, deferred remuneration schemes. So I think if an employer does want to go ahead with a redundancy exercise, he ought to make sure that he's got a clear idea of what his business rationale is, that he's confident that he can demonstrate a genuine belief that the individual is redundant and should make sure that the preparations at an early stage are are provisional and that there is no suggestion of a fait accompli and that all um, options or proposals will only be implemented once there's been appropriate consultation. So you mentioned earlier the importance of having an audit trail of what has been considered prior to embarking on a redundancy exercise. What other preparatory steps would you recommend an employer takes once it has decided to make redundancies? Well I think it's that that point again about the audit trail and making sure that there is a business case setting out the rationale for the proposal to declare redundancies and that it's not uh, written in stone. And once um, that proposal is, is on the table, it's got to be subject to consultation and at all times and at all stages it should be made clear that no final decision will be taken until um, there has been an appropriate consultation process. And that consultation will vary in a, in a larger scale collective redundancy exercise, then the employer will be expected to engage 
and discuss with the um, trade union or with the elected employee reps the underlying reasons for the redundancies, not just how that redundancy process is going to be implemented. So the, the start point is to work out um, whether there is um, a, a business closure, uh, the closure of the place of work and more difficult whether there is a reduced need for work of a particular type and what is the work or the category of employees or function for which there is that reduced requirement and from that go on to work out the type of roles at risk and to have some idea as to the number of individuals to be made um, redundant so be a question of defining the staff groups and identifying those who will be affected by that redundancy proposal um, once you've got an idea as to that um, you need to decide whether or not there is any risk that the collective redundancy consultation obligations will be triggered where there's a proposal for 20 or more um, and then draw up the selection pools of the employees who will be at risk and then criteria which will be applied to those selection pools to identify the individuals who are provisionally identified as actually being made redundant subject to individual consultation. So you mentioned collective redundancy there. Can you tell me a bit more about when that kicks in and how are the periods calculated and what should an employer do to prepare for this? Well, the collective redundancy consultation is triggered where there is a proposal to dismiss 20 or more employees within a 90-day period. Now, there are two tiers of consultation where an employer is thinking about making redundant between 20 and 99 employees then there must be um, a consultation period of at least 30 days before the first of those dismissals takes effect in a larger scale exercise which will um, result in or it has been proposed that will result in 100 or more redundancies within that 90-day period then the consultation must continue for at least 45 days before the first dismissal takes place. Now there's been a, a very recent decision in uh, the European Court of Justice just before Christmas so um, it still applies to us in the Marklean case which has made life much more complicated because in looking at this reference period, the 90-day reference period to determine whether or not um, there are 20 or more employees uh, at risk of redundancy, we now have to look forward and look backwards and quite how an employer is supposed to um, work out retrospectively whether um, he's got to comply with the obligation is a difficult one to fathom. So I think we will need some Apple at court decisions to help us work out whether that applies or whether it can work at all. But fundamentally, it's a question of, of, of numbers. So it's important for employer to, to um, define the staff groups who will be affected or who won't be affected. Um, one point to be wary of is volunteers, because um, there are authorities which make it clear that even uh, uh, those who volunteer for redundancy will count towards this threshold of um, 20 or more employees. So once you've decided um, that collective consultation is required, whether for pure redundancies or whether for the uh, purposes of varying contracts of employment, then the 
next thing that the employer will have to do is work out with whom he's going to consult. Now, if the employer recognises a trade union, then he must consult with trade union reps for the, the relevant category of employees. If a category of employees is not recognised, then we will have to um, arrange elections. So invite the groups of employees who are affected by the redundancy proposal to uh, propose um, individuals who will stand as representatives and then they will be the recipients of the prescribed written information and sit down with the employer and consult on the redundancy proposals. Uh, one other point again not to forget is the obligation to notify the, um, the Secretary of State on Form HR1 of a proposal to declare redundancies. Now, it sounds a bit like a formality, but uh, it is actually quite important, and again, particularly now, because the purpose is to make sure that the Local Unemployment Benefit Office is going to be aware of an influx of redundancies and can gear up and try to help um, meet those who lose their jobs and it's actually a criminal offence not to deliver that form HR1 and at the same time as doing so the employer is supposed to deliver to the Secretary of State the same prescribed written information as he delivers to the union or to the um, elected employee representatives. So that does add a, quite a layer of complexity to dealing with any redundancy situation. If we go back a, a step to look at identifying the selection pool, how is the best approach to take in that situation? And what factors should the business and often HR take into account? And what are the risks and pitfalls in so doing? Well, um, I think the redundancy selection pools and application of selection criteria is probably the most contentious issue because uh, the employee's provisionally identified or selected for redundancy will turn around and say, well, why, why me? So what the employer should do is work out what is the reduced need uh, or, or for what is there a re reduced need? Who are the employees who are employed to uh, provide that service or function and therefore scope the redundancy selection pool? It's often very attractive to take a narrow view and to avoid having to adopt and apply criteria by saying, well, X, you are the only person who really does your role. So you are in a redundancy selection pool of one. So there's no need for me to adopt criteria. Um, that can avoid these difficult discussions and conversations, but um, it's often sensible for an employer to have a, a, a backup approach by saying, well, even if I didn't conclude that you were the only one doing your job, um, I have considered you with a group of others who might represent the same pool. And by applying what I think are appropriate criteria, it still comes out to suggest that you are the person who should unfortunately lose your job. The concept of bumping is a difficult one, that this is where employee A um, does one job and there's a reduced requirement for his role, but rather than make employee A redundant, the employer says, well, actually, um, I am going to keep A and substitute him to replace employee B. So employee B will be made redundant, and that is called bumping, even though there's no reduced requirement for his role. Now, there are various um, authorities which suggest that an employer should consider bumping, um, but inevitably it's going to be much more difficult to explain to employee B that he's losing his job being replaced by someone else, even though there is actually no 
reduced need for the work which B is employed to do. But ultimately, the test for unfair dismissal applies to redundancy procedures, which is the range of reasonable responses. So could or would a reasonable employer in these circumstances adopt the same approach as this particular employer has adopted? So we've looked at our selection pools. In practical terms, what selection criteria should employers adopt? Are there standard criteria or are there criteria to be avoided? Well, again, the, the criteria will be a potentially contentious area. And the old uh, cases all suggest that the employer should adopt fair and objective criteria so it's clear and obvious um, that they have been fairly measured. So they would be um, something like length of service, attendance, disciplinary records, um, and can also include performance and ability based on a sort of objective assessment of appraisals or annual reviews, etc. But I think take a step back from that. And um, we're no longer in the era where we're actually trying to select for redundancy factory workers who all do pretty much the same thing in pretty much the same way. What employers are really trying to do with the redundancy exercise is trim down the workforce and retain their best people. So they're much more attracted to using criteria which will allow them to identify and keep their best people. And that inevitably means that they will default to more subjective criteria such as assessing the skills of an individual his flexibility to do work especially when uh, the workforce is being thinned out you may need people to be a, a bit more um, multi-skilled um, their commitment to work their aptitude to doing uh, their existing and any other types of work they might be asked to take on uh, performance and even their potential so looking at their career potential and of trajectory for for promotion abilities but those are going to involve more subjective judgments which are therefore harder for an employer to articulate and harder for the employer to explain but will ultimately be uh, more valuable to the employer in, re in retaining so i think the trend is very much towards employers using subjective criteria but at a greater risk Indeed, because uh, with all that subjectivity coming in, that can, that can give rise to discrimination claims as to why people have been picked over others. So by, is there anything else that employers should be doing at this point before starting the process? Before announcing redundancies, and which will inevitably cause some alarm to the workforce, uh, they should be looking at other group entities and considering whether there are opportunities or alternative roles available across the group, uh, possibly even if they are not suitable alternative roles, because it can be um, quicker, easier to manage these things by consent to be able to say to someone, look, there's, there's a, a resourcing issue here. And what we'd like to do is move you across to a different role where there is a, a a longer term secure future for you. And um, if you weren't inclined to do that, then we might have to consider a redundancy exercise. So they should look at that um, and see if they can avoid the redundancies, but um, often that will not be possible, uh, but that step should still be taken because as part of the procedural process, the employer will have to demonstrate that before actually biting the bullet and 
deciding to terminate employment that he has looked for alternatives and has satisfied himself that there's nothing else that he can reasonably do to avoid terminating the employment. Thanks very much Trevor, that was very interesting to understand what constitutes a redundancy and how best to plan to deal with it. So in our next podcast we'll be looking at how to carry out a redundancy exercise including collective and individual consultation, scoring the selection criteria and what documentation is needed. Don't forget that if you want any particular advice or further information on redundancy or any other employment related questions, please contact Trevor or me. Thank you for listening. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.